Hello, welcome again to the episode in the Let Fuel Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vance Gann. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today is May 31st, 2023, and I'm delighted to have on another happy warrior and someone who continues to be on the front lines of poverty relief initiatives to make sure that everyone can prosper. And it's none other than Les Ford. Les, welcome to the Let Fuel Prosper show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on today. For the audience, I'm going to go ahead and read your bio and then we'll get right into it. So Leslie Ford, uh, I'll go by Les, is an adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility. She is also president of Ford Policy Solutions and a member of the State Board of Social Services at the Virginia Department of Social Services. Ms. Ford previously served in the White House as a domestic policy advisor and special assistant to the president from 2018 to 2020, which I had the pleasure of working with her there then. It was a great time. During that time, she worked on the development of the Trump administration's welfare and anti-poverty strategic agenda and on reforms to U.S. social safety net programs. Before joining the White House, Ms. Ford was a legislative advisor to Senator Mike Lee of Utah. While working on Capitol Hill, she oversaw the development of 22 pieces of legislation and more than 50 amendments on significant bills to advance health and welfare reforms. Ms. Ford started her career at the Heritage Foundation. Ms. Ford has been published in the Wall Street Journal and National Review. She holds a BA from was it Franciscan University of Steubenville? Um, and she's just all around great person. So Les, it's really a pleasure to have you on today. I want to talk a lot about poverty relief initiatives and things of that nature. But before we get started, uh, what motivates you to do what you do each and every day? I love this question because in the policy world or when you're in DC, you always get asked, what do you do? Not necessarily, why do you do what you do? So my reason is vulnerable kids. It always has been. From the moment I graduated college and even throughout college, it was looking at kids who are in a tough spot. And that could be, you know, a parent is in the home. They're in a tough education system. They just don't have a lot of opportunity. And looking at how do you break a vulnerable child out of that state. So it all starts there for me. I would define myself as a safety net expert. I really dive into the programs. And normally when you come to DC, you kind of get into program specifics. You're a healthcare expert or you're a food stamp expert or you're a foster care expert. So how I look at each of those policies, I, I look at who they're affecting. And for me, it's almost always the vulnerable family, the vulnerable kid, and how do we change those dynamics? So for me, it always starts with kids. Yeah, that's awesome. And and you have kids of your own and I have kids I of my own. And so it's, it's important, right? That we see them, you know, I was, I was fiscal conservative, somebody who really wanted to improve America and everything else. Um, and, and for the world. Uh, but now as I have kids, I want it to be even better, you know, cause we're <laughs> passing on that legacy. And so that's so key about all the kids that are out there. There needs to be someone else helping them out, making sure that there is someone that's looking at public policy. Um, they don't get to vote yet. They don't, they don't get the opportunity to have that voice. And so I really Really see you as one of those that are on the front lines of having their voice heard. So um, thank you for all you do with that. Um, oh, yeah. When, whenever you're working on these these policies, what has kind of driven you to make sure that you know that you're you're taking the best path, whether it be when you're at Heritage or AEI now, or you know we we both both work on this Alliance for Opportunity, which is part of the Pelican Institute, Texas Public Policy Foundation, and Georgia Center for Opportunity. We're working on these poverty relief initiatives. Where, you know, it, just a little bit of background is we've spent about $25 trillion in inflation adjusted dollars since 1965, kind of when the war on poverty got started in 1964. And, and so there's been a lot of money that's been spent 
But where do you really start to dive in and say, okay, let's look at this or that or, or something else? Yeah, I think I look and probably very similar to you. My vantage point is always like the government probably isn't helping. And so when I'm looking at any of these specific programs, I'm always looking for, I would almost say the pinch points of where's the government holding back prosperity? Where are they? Like, cause the government can come in and be effective in something like giving cash assistance or giving food assistance for a short time. But when does that helping become hurting? And that's really where you want to focus that policy change. So diving in, finding out where that pinch point is, and then kind of coming alongside that program being like, if we could change it, if we could make it an ideal program, how would we change it? So to give an example, uh, you and I talk a lot about how food stamps, you know, $1,100, $1,200 a month for a family of five. That would be my family size. That makes a lot of sense if someone's falling on a rough, a hard time. They lost a job. They're out of, you know, they need some help for six months to a year. When does it become a hurting point? Is it two years down the road when they still haven't gotten back up on their feet? Is it three years down the road? Is it five years down the road? There becomes a point where that helping hand actually hurts the family because it's preventing them from seeking out a, a solution to their to the spot they're in. So what can we devise in public policy to bring them to that point? That's always kind of the the how I frame up policy work. And, and you do that well. And one of the things that I've, I've, we've seen over time is kind of the expansion of government in so many areas of our lives. And you know maybe there's some trade-offs where if you have a bigger government and you have these larger safety nets, that there may not be as much personal responsibility within just society and individuals and everything else. Um, and, and, and this is something that really kind of troubles me is that you have a lot of folks, if you dive into who's in poverty, the number one is on single mothers, right? And, yeah. and, and part of that is because of the dad's not staying around. And there's been some research on well, why? And some of that could be because you have these safety nets to where if it's a baby's mama and they're like, hey, you know, the government's going to be there to help support her. Why would I want to do that too? Let's make sure that we don't get married or let's not stay mm -hmm. together. And there's other unintended consequences, right? That's something we talk about a lot yeah. in economics and I do on the show is that it goes back to what Milton Friedman said. Don't judge a policy by its intentions, but by the results. And, and the mm -hmm. results for a lot of these programs, even though I, I think that they were well-intended, we're not seeing those results. And, and, and is that something what you found in your research as well? Yeah. So 10 years ago, when I was at Heritage, I started out by studying marriage and studying the effect that parents who are married had on their kids. And more importantly, what happens when the when one parent isn't around? And unfortunately, you know, nine out of 10 times, if one parent's not around, it's going to be the father. So that's where I actually started. And then I came into welfare policy because I asked, what happened between 1965 and when I was studying in, uh, you know, 2010? to where we had 7% at a wedlock birth rate to 40%. And in some communities, it was sky high. In the African-American community, it was over 70%. In the Hispanic community, it was over 50%. And when you break it down by whether the mother is college educated or not, if they're not college educated, they didn't graduate high school, it shoots into the 50%. But if they are college educated, it's 11%. So we're seeing incredible disparities all based around this idea of marriage and family. 
to where marriage and having two parents in the home is almost a luxury good in our society. So it's a luxury good. And it also has terrible effects if the father isn't in the home. You know, like we see girls who don't have a father in the home growing up are seven to eight times more likely to become pregnant before they graduate high school. Boys who don't have a father in the home have incredible problems with aggression and again, are like eight to times, eight to nine times more likely to end up in jail. So all the problems that we're seeing in our society are also rooted back to this idea of marriage. Anyways, to connect this to the safety net program, as the out-of-wedlock birth rate increased, we saw welfare programs stepping in and taking at least the financial stake that the father used to have at the beginning of a child's life. That's a long way of getting around to why marriage matters and how the safety net has this unintended consequence that has dramatic impacts on children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and even the tax code, right? There are these disincentives in place for um, the taxes and tax code. There's the marriage penalty is what it's called. Also these fiscal cliffs where, yeah. where if you get married, then you lose some of those benefits that you would get from these safety net programs. And so that disincentivizes you from getting married. And and I think to your point there, there's also a lot of other social costs that are that are associated with this, where you have if you have if you don't have if you just have a single mom, um, in this case, which I grew up with just a single mom, um, you know, a lot of the kids come up with not maybe not going to college, right? It, it really takes someone to, to to change this generational poverty issue. Where and, and you know, I think that there are maybe some roles for government. I'm a, I'm a classical liberal, and so I want as limited government as possible. I would love to see the day where there's not any need for welfare at all, and there's a flourishing economy, and everybody can have a job, and all that, but we're not there. And, and and I don't know that we'll ever get there. And so when we're looking at these safety net programs, it's like, okay, but how do we help those who are most in need? And mm-hmm. I think that's a lot of the research that we're, we've been doing and, and you've been doing in particular of, uh, you know, marriage is important. We, we know about the success sequence, right? Graduate from high school, get, a, get married before you have kids. Um, and get a full-time job in that order, you know, I think you're 97% or 98% to not be in poverty. Um, and that's that's huge. Now there's a lot of other things that happen in between there. And I think that's some of the other research that we've been we've been doing. But but where is kind of the the role for government from from your viewpoint? What where should they really be targeting kind of their resources? Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll hit on three of the things that you kind of already mentioned. First, marriage penalties, just to give a very brief description of how they work in reality. So if I make 75 grand and my husband makes 75 grand, how the tax system treats us is it allows us to make 150 grand and have the same tax rate, not a marriage penalty. But if you're in a safety net system and say, I make 20 and he makes 20, he is considered in my household to only be an extra person, just as if he was a child. And by both us making 20, we are completely phased out of the safety net system. So the incentive on the woman's part, it's a completely understandable incentive, is to hide the husband, hide the boyfriend, and that creates instability in the family. So that's how marriage penalties work. We can fix that. There's a bunch of ways we can fix that, but we have to focus on making sure there aren't marriage disincentives in our safety net system. Second, we can focus on fiscal cliffs. This means that if I'm a single mother on Medicaid and I'm on SNAP and I'm on housing and I'm trying to return to work work should pay more than the safety net benefits. And that doesn't mean we extend the safety net benefits throughout the system. You know, generally we're talking about, you know, 20, 30 grand I can make. We don't want to extend benefits to 40 or 50 grand. 
We want to move the drop-off of benefits earlier so that as I'm making 10 or 15 grand, I'm seeing fewer benefits, but for slightly longer. So you have to be very careful about how you fix that issue. The third is just how our safety net functions. And I talk about this all a lot, that if I'm a single mom with two kids and I go into a, a SNAP office or a Medicaid office, I'm going to be handed a check or a health insurance card. Um, an EBT card is better than a check for uh, food stamps. But I'm, the first conversation isn't what's happening in your life. Did you not graduate? Did you go to community college? Do you have an AA? Do you have some pathway back to work that can actually provide a living wage for your family? Those discussions don't happen in our safety net. Those pathways aren't set up in the first, second, third month. That maybe happens five years down the road. And that is five years without income. It is five years without real social support for that family. So we need to change the goal of our safety net from the very moment she gets in the door. Yeah. Yep. That's right. And, and I want to talk about some of the solutions that I know you've been working on and we've been working together on some of those without getting too technical in the weeds, but we'll have to get into a little bit of the weeds, which is always fun as on some of these poverty metrics, right. That, mm -hmm. that are out there, you know, you have the official poverty measure and then you have the supplemental poverty measure. And there's actually been some discussion about that here recently in the news um, yes. where the Biden, the Biden administration has been wanting to change it to the supplemental poverty measure um, where it, it has some pros and cons, but I, I wanted to get your take on, on kind of what you see um, from these, these metrics overall. And, and just for the audience, right. The official poverty measures, the one that's used today, the supplemental was, was a supplemental one. I think it was what, 2009. Um, it started in 2009. I think the official report was in 2011. Yeah, that's right. So under the Obama, Obama administration, and they were trying to look at making some changes, but what's kind of your view on these different types of pov poverty metrics? Yeah. So just some historical context, because we're about to get wonky here, which I love. Yes. But when the war on poverty was started, LBJ turned to his administration and said, hey, if we're going to declare war on poverty, we should probably know how many people in America are poor. And they chose a technically somewhat arbitrary standard. His administration says, okay, we're going to say that food is about a third of what you should spend your money on. So whatever the basic... Um, amount to keep a family of four sustained in food, we're going to times that by three, and that's going to be our poverty level. And we've just indexed this for inflation ever since then. So that's the official poverty measure. Now, what's extremely important to understand about the official poverty measure is that we index all of our safety net programs to that. So whatever that line is set at, that's what food stamps is based on. That's what Medicaid is based on. That's what Obamacare subsidies are based on. That's what Medicare Part D is based on. So if you mess with that line, you are if you are increase the number of people who fall below that line, you are increasing government spending unilaterally because everything else is tied to it. Now, in 2009, when the Obama administration was in, they said, hey, this line doesn't make a lot of sense. It only counts cash benefits. It doesn't count, you know, food stamps. It doesn't count tax credits like uh, the earned income tax credit. We really should uh, form an interagency working group and figure out a better standard um, that would better capture when people are actually in poverty. And this was called the Supplemental Poverty Measure. They published it in 2011. I and others have a serious issue with one thing they did in it. Um, so they counted all those things that should be counted. They also tied it to median income. So the better that the American middle class does, the worse, the higher the poverty line goes. And therefore, the more people you would expect to 
view as being in poverty. So that's been ongoing since 2011. And what's in the news this week? I just gave you a lot of history. What's in this, the news this week is there is a National Academy of Sciences report out. It said, hey, we're really looking at this OPM, this official poverty measure. And you know what? Something similar to the SPM would be a lot better to take its place. And here's the thing. The Biden administration can do this by itself. There's something called Statistical Directive 14 that OMB publishes, hasn't been updated since the 70s. They could update that Statistical Directive 14 and substitute the official poverty measure for the, the supplemental poverty measure. And they would unilaterally increase government spending by well over $100 billion over 10 years. So that's what's in the news. We do need to look at the OPM. It has tons of flaws, but not in the way that the Obama administration went at it. Yep. That was a great explanation because there are a lot of details and, and Les always does a good job explaining it. And, you know, you've taught me some things with it as well, Les, because I don't know if I was totally in favor, but I was more in favor of the supplemental than the official poverty measure for a while. And you've, you've, you've walked me away from that. One of the things that I think was helpful, at least comparing the states um, with a supplemental, not to necessarily change it for what we're doing for poverty measures and, and, and welfare programs, safety net programs and things of that nature, but was that there was this adjustment for the cost of living, which yes. is mainly on housing. And so whenever I was comparing and doing a lot of research when I was at the Texas Public Policy Foundation was saying, okay, well, Texas has a pretty high official poverty rate, which if you look at the three-year average, I'm looking at the latest report right now, um, Texas is 12.9% which is one of the highest in the nation. Um, and, but California, right? You're always trying to compare Texas and California, the two largest states in GDP and population, but also the largest red and largest blue states. Um, California's is, it was, um, of the last three years, was 11%, right? So it's it's lower. So things look better overall if you look at the official poverty measure. But if you look at the supplemental, which goes into some of the calculation issues that you just mentioned, um, but also does the cost of living difference. Texas is 10.4%, which is right around the average of 9.6% for the for the nation, um, whereas California is 13.2%, the highest in the nation overall. And so I would usually, you know, point that out. So I, I think that there are some good uses for it, maybe for that, but not for measuring our safety net programs. Because what this means, it, and, and you did a great job there, is that California would get a lot more safety net programs and expenditures than Texas would if mm -hmm. we base it on this measure. And it disincentivizes there to be more pro-growth, pro-family, pro-market pro sort of policy changes and reforms of limiting spending, of, of cutting taxes, sensible regulation, the more of the institutional framework stuff that I think will allow for more people to prosper. You will have less incentive to do that because more people are going to be on the poverty programs, right? Yeah. So- and it's important to mention that when we're talking about the official poverty measure, we're really gauging, we're combining two issues into one. One is what I mentioned is that all of our safety net programs are tied to this measure, to the, I'm going to call it the OPM from now on because it's too uh, cumbersome good. to spell it out. So if we substitute, if and you've mentioned that there is a housing adjustment within the SPM. And that's great if you're just trying to analyze the other thing, which is how many people are actually struggling. And if you include California's terrible housing policies, you're going to say a lot more people are struggling in California than Texas. But if you're saying that the OPM um, should be tweaked for housing subsidies, then you're saying California should get a lot more federal subsidies because of their terrible housing policies. So we have to distinguish between distinguish between 
how using the OPM to send more money to more folks in the States and using the OPM to tell us how Americans are actually doing on the ground. Those are two different things. They just happen to be in the same measure. Yep. Yep. That's good. Um, okay. So we've talked a lot about that. We've got through some of the, the technicalities that's going on there. And, and even at the White House, and we were both there at the same time, the Trump administration had a lot of those um, discussions. And there was actually talk about changing up some of the poverty metrics and, and everything else. Yeah. And we actually uh, formed another interagency working group. Um, yes. Bruce Meyer led this, and he's um, one of the foremost scholars at the University of Chicago on this issue. And Kevin Corinth, who's another colleague, he was a participant in the interagency working group. And we were really looking at the second question, which is how can we accurately uh, depict how Americans are doing, how they're struggling? And whether they're actually moving to self-sufficiency. And so there's two ways you can really do that. One, you can track how much are we actually giving to everyone? You know, track your SNAP data, your food stamp data, track your Medicaid data, track your housing data, track all of those track uh, tax credits that go out and see if they're actually pushing people into a life that uh, doesn't have deprivation. Um, you can measure that by consumption data or admin data. Um, a, a conversation we've been having a lot is, Yes, it's great that we can actually see whether government subsidies are moving people away from, you know, the edge of desperation. Well, can we actually track whether they're moving to self-sufficiency, whether they've got a job that's able to provide for their families, whether they're not cycling in and out of this, this cycle where they need to go back to these programs? I, I'm very interested in that second question because measuring self-sufficiency allows us to measure the end of our policy goals. We declared a war on poverty almost 60 years ago. Have we actually moved people to self-sufficiency? That is the open question in our society. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And we've spent a lot of money. We spent <laughs> a lot then, of money. You know, it. $25 trillion in, in inflation adjusted, but still a trillion dollars a year, mm, right? Well over. Um, well over. Over that. And so this is a massive amount of money. It's coming out of the private sector. It's coming out of job creation, higher wages, and lower prices. Um, and so we've got to make sure we're doing things right or at least close to right, because <laughs> government's always going to have some issues there. And there's also there's always a lot of pushback, too. I remember when we were at the White House and we were trying to make some changes, I mean, there was a lot of pushback internally. I think if, when you when you release it externally, you get a lot of pushback. Um, the Biden administration's feeling that right now with the pushback, I think rightfully so in this case. Mm -hmm. um, but there's always that pushback of those who are ingrained to the system. Um, yeah. And so they're, they're, it's going to be difficult to make some key changes. And that is why, kind of, our, kind of pivoting here now to what can happen at the state level. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think the states are really where we need to make these key reforms, the key changes that really got started back before the 1996 reforms in Congress where, where states were leading the way. And now we need states to lead again. And um, and I'd love for us to kind of you know talk about some of the work that we've been doing lately. Um, but where would you like to start? Let's start with the '96 reform because yeah. I always like to make it very clear that the safety net has largely been built on the left's idea that we should just take money from taxpayers and distribute it to those who don't have as much, um, and that's the way to fight poverty. And the right had a saw all of the problems, all the unintended consequences with those policies, but the reform started at a state level. It started in a state, Wisconsin, it started in Oregon, it started in Utah. Those are the three big states that were really innovating. And they applied for waivers from uh, what was at the time called uh, Aid to Dependent Families with Children, AFDC. And they started innovating with ideas like work requirements, which was 
Hey, after you've been on the program for three or six months, even if you're a single mom with a couple of kids, we're going to expect you to start working even 20 hours a week. And suddenly the caseloads dropped. People weren't as dependent on government, but also people returned to work. Single mothers returned to work. We saw educational, we see educational outcomes for their kids improve. We saw all, all sorts of the good things. So Wisconsin kind of led the way. And then Clinton ran on end welfare as we know it in 92. And in 1996, the Republicans took back the House under Newt Gingrich and passed a welfare bill twice before Clinton actually signed it. But what was incredible is they put work and time limits at the heart of every program. They said, yes, we're going to help you, but there has to be some sort of reciprocal relationship here. So in my opinion, after working at Congress with people I loved and respected, Congress has to follow what works at the state level. So you have to pivot to states who are closer to the problems, closer to their people. They actually have to mind their budgets. When you start there and you put work at the heart of the program, time limits at the heart of the programs as best you can and engaging with people where they are, but having that reciprocal relationship at the heart of every program, then you can start seeing the outcomes that we saw in 96. So it takes a little bit more creativity at the state level because there are a lot of federal strings. Waivers are harder to come by, but we can start with that in almost every program. And one of the questions or um, the questions I often hear from the 1996 reforms is that, well, aren't you just forcing people to work? What what about those single moms? You know, they, they then they don't get time with their family. And, you know, doesn't this create other problems within the family unit if you're if you're pushing people into work? What what do you say yeah. to some of that? So I did a deep dive on this as well because I hear that all the time. I'm a mom. I have three kids under seven. I am very sympathetic to this argument. And so I wanted to do a deep dive and really grapple with what was the reality of the 96 reform. So I'm going to start off with some stats and go through them really quickly. So on the AFDC program, nine out of 10 of the recipients were single mothers. Nine out of 10 were completely unemployed. They had no work in the home whatsoever. They were on the rolls for an average of eight years. And what we witnessed, what the country witnessed, what really broke the heart of people in this country was intergenerational poverty. Educational outcomes for kids were they were in the lowest you could see. Kids were not graduating high school, and then they were continuing on into the cycle with teenage pregnancy and then coming on to welfare roles. What happened with the 96 reform? We applied a work requirement, 20 hours a week. To, if you were a single mom, obviously there was a higher work requirement for married couples, but there just weren't that many married couples on the program. And it was applied if you had a child over the age of six, so a school-age child, or a child over the age of one at the discretion of the state, but it... That was only in a, a case where the child, the mother had child care. So there's always an exemption. There's always common sense exemptions that you can throw into uh, the mix. And they added in a five-year time limit. Now, what happened was amazing. Uh, unemployment amongst mothers rose from, I think it's the mid-50s to the mid-70s. Welfare dependence declined rapidly. Educational outcomes increased exponentially. And child poverty dropped eight points the most it had ever dropped in the history of this country. So the outcomes were amazing. And what we learned is that every family needs to have the witness of a working parent. Now, would I love for every single one of those families to have a married father who was committed to that family in the home who is providing that example? Well, absolutely, that is the goal. I can't always reverse history. Um, what we can do is 
arm those single mothers who I want to make very clear are taking on the role of two parents in every single aspect of their lives. We can arm those single mothers to give her children the best possible example and the most stability in the home that is feasible. And so that means returning to work at least 20 hours a week to get those outcomes. So and it's not just the economic outcomes. I do want to point that out. When people are disconnected from work, when families are disconnected from work, we see their lives shorten. We see their mental health uh, decrease. We see their overall health decrease. And we see children's educational outcomes decrease. So everything that we could really think about the health of the family is connected to work. Yep. Yep. No, those are great stats there and other information. And we need to get, we need to get nerdy every once in a while. I think that's, that's important yeah, because these, these numbers and the data matter um, because it's not so much about how many people are on the program. What I think what we've been trying to do is redefine the narrative of how many people are we getting off? <laughs> how many people how many, are, how many ahead. people are getting off and how many people are doing better once yes. they get off? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's all about, you know, let people prosper is it's not just, material things. Yes, that's part of it, but there are so many other ways, spiritually, um, mentally, uh, educational. I mean, there are so many other ways to prosper. And so that is really ultimately what I'm hoping to do. And I know you're working on as well. And so it's good to hear that those types of reforms are so important and then they work. Um, some of the other stuff that we've been working on here recently with the Alliance for Opportunity is to work on how to make sure we get more money that people were actually trying to to help with these programs because a lot of it goes to bureaucracy and waste and other things. Um, and, and through audits, you know, I think these performance audits, um, independent audits, efficiency audits, whatever you want to call them, are going to be really important. And we've seen some of that already happening in Texas and Louisiana and Georgia, um, you know, looking at other, other ways of the WIOA, you know, I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit about that on this Utah model, kind of a one, one door model of streamlining a lot of these. Um, and then we've talked a little bit about empowerment accounts and how some of those things, you know, I, I'd like to hear maybe some of your thoughts on, on some of those and, and, and then I can chime in as well. Oh, sure. These are all very exciting to me. Yes. So yes. let's start with audits. Okay. So when we're looking at the programs and again, it kind of gets back to the question you asked at the beginning. How do you analyze policy? You have to analyze policy by defining your goal at the beginning. And the problem with almost every single one of our safety nets, it's about how much money have you sent out the door? How many people have you enrolled? And how many checks or debit cards have you sent out the door? That isn't the goal. The goal should be, have, are these people growing to self-sufficiency? And once you have that goal in mind, you can kind of backfill, how do we do it? Um, so a performance audit at a state level, ask that question. How many people are growing to self-sufficiency over the two quarters or four quarters after they exit? Are they getting a job? Are they earning more money? And generally, when we apply work requirement to SNAP, people earn twice as much within a year and three times as much within two years. So you need to ask that question. So that's within the safety net. You also need to ask that question of, kind of almost wellness programs, you know, employment and training programs, substance abuse programs, anti-recidivism programs, these programs that have great ideas, which is let's get people a job or let's cut that addiction that they're struggling with, or let's prevent them from returning to jail. Unfortunately, when we actually, we rarely track this data at a federal level. And when we do, we find most of these programs aren't really working. So the performance audit can go in and get to the heart of have you defined the goal and are you meeting the goal? If you can't, if you don't have that basic information, you're never going to be able to implement the policies to get you to that goal. 
So step one, analyze what's going on, get those performance audits. And what you and I have found is that states don't do this. Uh, Louisiana did a TANF audit two years ago, a year ago. Uh, Texas did a a TANF audit. This is the program that replaced AFTC, Temporary Assistance in Navy Families, uh, last year. And we found they're not spending their money on work activities and they are not measuring self-sufficiency. So audits are getting passed in Louisiana, in Texas, in Georgia this year. We're excited to see what happens. It's usually it takes about a year to get a t- an audit back. Okay, so um, number two to really go in is you can reorganize how your state government functions by putting the person at the heart of your government. So I mentioned uh, in the '90s there were three states that really took on welfare reform at a state level. It was Wisconsin, and that kind of inspired the federal reform. And then Utah also did an incredible reform at a state level. Uh, Governor Levitt, who was uh, in charge at the time, he said, it doesn't make sense that we have 50 some odd programs. We have the safety net over here dealing with the family and we'll workforce system over here. If our goal is to move people to self-sufficiency, our safety net should be integrated with our workforce system so that one caseworker, when a single mom comes in the door, can ask the question, what do you need to put food on the table, to have a roof on your heads, to stabilize yourself? While also asking the question, what do you need to get back on your feet without this help? I've mentioned before, this conversation never happens, except in one state, Utah. In 1992, they kicked off their reform by doing that first step, the performance audit. And they said, how many programs do we have interacting with this family? And then in 1996, they formed a task force to say, okay, there are dozens of programs. How about we put them out into all into one department. And finally, in 1997, they reorganized all their safety net programs, all their workforce programs into the Department of Workforce Services that was able to do this important work of putting the person at the heart, at the center of the programs, not the program, forcing the person to come to the programs. So that was the second thing. You start with audits, you reorganize to put your goals in the person at the center. And then third, you can begin to experiment with If we, uh, again, the left designed all of our safety net programs, people who are benefit focused, not outcome focused. So what if after you've defined your outcomes and you've measured what's happening, what if you change how a program functions? So you put in a time limit and you make it a year long. Uh, You put in something, you give them more flexibility so that if they need to spend money on a coat this week versus Food, they might be able to do that as long as you get the, you can, you're able to track that. So some of the ways we've seen that lead to independence is work and budgeting, just the ability to track where your dollars are going. So what if you put a work requirement in, you know, 20 hours a week with a caseworker who's coming alongside you to make sure you're meeting that and you put budgeting at the heart of it. So beginning to track your dollars, um, see where it's being spent you know, a little Dave Ramsey kind of style right at the beginning. That isn't to say this is easy and it is not extraordinarily tough to live at the edge, but these are the tools to move you beyond the edge. Yes, so. yes, definitely. And and I like the way you laid that all out. You know, let's find out where the money's going, how, how it's being used. Let's streamline the kind of the Utah one-door policy here and the kind of empowerment accounts of bringing all this together 
um, to where you can have maybe one, one account instead of multiple to where you can streamline. Those also allow for flexibility, whether it's TANF, like you said, or, um, uh, or, or food stamps or, or housing or whatever the case may be, put those all in one. So that way, whenever you have this money, um, they can use it to what's best going to be for them not best on whatever the system is trying to tell you to do. You know, there's a lot of talk about empowering parents through school choice. It's kind of like empowering them, pairing recipients to find self-sufficiency because they're going to learn while they're on this system. They're going to be gaining skills while they're work or training. And it also helps with some of the fiscal cliffs, the benefits cliffs, where you can save this money and have it at the end of the day. So that when you get off the program, you don't just maybe cycle right back on soon thereafter. Um, and, and so these skills and this, these, this is a change of the, really the narrative about what should go on with these safety nets, like you said earlier, not about the number of people, but what are the outcomes that we're getting. Um, but it's also a change on the mindset of these individuals to where I think is one, not of scarcity, but of abundance. We really need to be changing that, um, you know, kind of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, if you will, because we do have abundant resources that are out there. We do have more opportunities. And instead of that depression and, and um, the dire situation that I think many of these people feel like they're in and they feel like they're stuck or trapped on these programs, they can then feel unleashed. Uh, they can feel more prosperous and, and optimistic about the future, which will also benefit their kids, their grandkids, and, and just those around them at the end of the day. And so I think these are all key reforms, you know, Les, that I'm so glad that you're working on. And it's, it's a pleasure to be working with you on this. Um, you know, the, the last question here is what makes you hopeful um, that people, we will be, have more prosperity for the future? I think everyone is invested in this idea that people can grow. Um, I see it more and more on a daily basis. Like, Yes, VC can get stuck. Right now it's May 31st, so we're in the middle of a debt ceiling fight and we're quibbling back and forth about little things. But when you have a discussion and you really break down what people want for families who are vulnerable or families who are on the edge or a single mom who just doesn't know how to make it to the end of the month, people want more for them. And there's this general agreement in polling and conversations and anecdotes that we can meet her where she's at and also come alongside her as she grows. And we can do both at the same time. And it's not an either or. So I feel hopeful in every day that I have this conversation and every day I see polling that comes back with that truth. Yeah, no, that's great. And well, um, Continue to do what you're doing. I know you're doing a lot of great things and I look forward to working with you on these as we move forward. And um, God bless you and your family, Les. Thank you for being here today. Hey, Vance, thank you so much for having me on. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you and learn from you. And I'm wishing you the best with this podcast because I'm loving it so much. And um, say hi to your family for me as well. Okay, same to you. And I appreciate that very much. And for the audience, I hope you enjoyed our discussion. Um, Please leave us a five-star rating. um, Share it with your family and friends as I hope that they will enjoy it and learn from it as much as as we have here today. Um, And so until next time, let people prosper.